Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, episode 34. As many of you noticed, I took a break for the week of July 4th. This was my sixth fourth as an American citizen. I said on Twitter that it was my fifth fourth, but that was wrong because I can't count. It was my 13th fourth as an immigrant to the United States, and I think that this one was by far the most American yet. In part because this year, I got to set fireworks off in the street. Now, I know I can be a bit of a parody of myself on July 4th, and I certainly was this year, Wearing a Hawaiian shirt and an American flag bandana, I drove around the corner in my golf cart to eat burgers and hot dogs and set fireworks off in the street. The only thing that could have made it more American is if I'd had a bald eagle with me, but he's been sulking since Luther Abel disappeared, so I guess that'll have to be next year. If you enjoy this podcast, please write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't enjoy it, well, that's actually extremely hurtful. I grind myself into the dust for you every week. I sit down, I ask questions, I breathe in and out, I take occasional sips of water, and then you go and say something as hurtful as that you don't enjoy the show. And you know, this is exactly how the French Revolution began. So, Maybe think about that next time. Guillotines are legal in Florida, you know. Our sponsor today is CEI's Free the Economy podcast. Health, wealth, and happiness. Three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government control. And that is why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use, and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree that freedom is contagious. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org forward slash free the economy. My guest this week is Tim Carney, who is the senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the author back in 2019 of a book called Alienated America, 
Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Tim, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So your book is not about Donald Trump directly, but as many things are, it is in large part about or themed around or teed off from something that Donald Trump said, which was that the American dream is dead. And at the beginning of the book, you point out that when Trump said that the American dream is dead, many people, and I'm sure I'm among them, responded by saying he was wrong. Now you write in the book, I quote, they'd point to the stock market, they'd point out the decent wages of Trump's core voters, they'd point out the historical privilege enjoyed by these old white Christian men. But then, you write, and I quote again, the materialistic view of the American dream, however, misses the point. And you say this is because wealth and the opportunity to create wealth aren't in fact the American dream, but are at best a prerequisite to the American dream. And I think in summing up the book, you write, what if the T-ball game, the standing room only high school Christmas concert, the parish potluck, and decorating the community hall for a wedding, what if those activities are not the dressings around the American dream, but what if they are the American dream? And in effect, what you're asking in the book is whether the quote, declines in marriage voting, church attendance, and volunteer work, that's your list, are synonymous with a decline in the American dream. Is that a fair summary of what the book's about for those who haven't read it? Yeah, that's a, an excellent summary that um, the, the things we belong to, that it's easy to kind of take for granted if you, if you belong to them, if you're involved in your community, if you go to church, if you have a sh live in a strong neighborhood, um, that those aren't just nice things to have. And that the places that really are suffering in America, um, what marks them, what characterizes them, what causes them to have high drug overdoses, high teenage pregnancy, low marriage, etc., is not just an economic story. And it's not just some sort of, you know, people are becoming immoral and lazy or something. It's a cultural story. And it's about the loss of those community institutions that result in us spending our Friday night at a, a, a swim meet or at a t-ball game or at a, a community potluck. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Let's assume that all of the things that you identify are true and they're happening as you suggest. When did this decline start and what caused it? Do you want to start in Tocqueville or the book of Genesis? What sort of... Be <laughs> well, that's uh, why I ask, because there are some people who will say, look, we have always had problems. This is just yeah. a recitation of the current ones. And so um, Robert Putnam says he wrote Bowling Alone, and he tracked civic engagement, belonging, volunteering, etc. And he said that the 1960s was a, a rare peak in that like the year 1960 was the peak in america being the place where people know their neighbors coach 
little league, join bowling leagues, etc. And so that's an important thing because Putnam's a he's on the left and he really doesn't like the fact that conservatives really liked his work. But the corrective he gives to conservatives that's useful there is some conservatives have this. I use the, the Garden of Eden image intentionally that before some one bad thing happened, the sexual revolution, etc., that the standard state was we were all belonging. I don't I don't argue that I kind of start the book in post-World War II, a decade later, you know, late 1950s, south of Pittsburgh, Steel Town, the Manesin, the uh, Monongahela Valley, the Mon Valley. So Fayette County, Pennsylvania is a, a big place where my book is set. I start there and I point out that really then a guy could graduate high school, get a good job. So that's the economic argument that you hear these days from a lot of conservatives, and we, we can get to that later. But also, that's exactly when the people who chart civic engagement, civil society, they say that that was the peak in, to the degree that we can measure it. So we could go back to Tocqueville and talk about that if you want, because what I'm describing is the same thing that Tocqueville described of everybody, Americans constantly forming things. The Brits would turn to the, you know, the lord of the manor to solve a problem. The French would turn to the government and the Americans would get together in the street and say, all right, let's start a, organiza- a committee that's going to solve this problem. So it's it's been part of America's history, but the recent peak from which we're coming down that I chart in this book, and that resonates when Trump says make America great again, is 1960 or late 1950s. So what happened in the late 50s or 1960 or the early 1960s that changed this? And why did it happen in some places and not in mm-hmm. others? Because there are parts of America, and you write about this at the beginning, where people have communities in much the same way as they would have in 1960. Well, let me put it this way. For the working class to really have access to these strong communities and that sort of stuff – might have required the economic conditions of 1960 America, which is to say it was really easy for a man to graduate high school, get a job that didn't require any prior skill, so it's a factory job, have kind of a guarantee of employment, steady employment, throughout his adulthood until retirement, and make a good enough living to raise his kids and with a little bit of overtime get a you know a fishing cabin and a fishing boat for the family. So that was the economic precondition, but the cultural precondition also was that we were still basically a and more than probably even before a Christian country that people belong to church and the cover of alienated America is not a shuttered factory, it's a shuttered church and that's for a reason that for the working class and the middle class in America, that has always been the main institution of community. Robert Putnam says as much in Bowling Alone. He says, oh, about half of all civic activity originates in the church in America. And so that's Mormon, Jewish, Muslim, but in America, that basically means Christian, mostly Protestant, secondarily Catholic. And so as we've become secularized, we've become deinstitutionalized. But another thing just has been the march of individualism. And if you've read Yuval Levin's Fractured Republic, he walks through how starting with the end of World War II, we were on a steady march towards individualism. 
And some of those seeds were already planted by 1960. There's something about American suburbia that was built up after the war that really was more either individualistic or atomistic on the family level that over the years then manifested itself in, in more isolation, more alienation. The idea that we have, uh, our neighbors have a claim on our time, that we ought to help them if something is wrong, that we have claims on other people, those those go out of fashion as both the sexual revolution and just generally the cultural tide right and left push towards individualism as not just a thing, but the kind of the definition of liberty. And so I kind of mix in there some proximate causes and more zeitgeist causes. So I don't know if you want to drill down on any of those. Yeah. So I want to talk about religion and I want to talk about economics and I want to talk about individualism. But before we do that, I think we ought to put some concrete into the ground and establish some examples of areas where this Mm -hmm. is happening. So either literal places that you went to or hold up as a good example or a set of characteristics that will predict these sorts of communities without community? The strong communities, a pair I like to highlight is Oostburg, Wisconsin, and Chevy Chase, Maryland. And so as a political reporter for The Examiner, I, would, I went to Oostburg for the Wisconsin primary, and I went to Chevy Chase for the the Maryland primary. I'd pick Chevy Chase because it's the wealthiest municipality in the whole Washington, D.C. area. There's a Chevy Chase, Washington, D.C., and a town of Chevy Chase, but I'm talking about the, the, the wealthiest one, which is a village of Chevy Chase. It's right on the D.C. border. Average house there back uh, in 2016 was 1.5 million. It's probably well over two right now. Uh, you, I parked at the polling place to interview voters, and it was between, you know, like a Mercedes and a Porsche or, or something like that. Just very wealthy. The people who I met, I like, were former ambassadors and and that kind of thing. And to, we had started a little bit with Trump, but um, Donald Trump obviously bombed not just in the general election in Chevy Chase, but in the primary. These people voted for John Kasich in the Republican primary, and I interpreted support for Trump as being endorsement of the belief that the American dream was dead. Support for Trump in the early Republican primaries, I think, uh, lined up with that belief. So that is the people of Chevy Chase, the American dream is not dead. And it's not that they're wealthy behind their gated community. You walk down the street, there are bicycles on the front lawns in Chevy Chase. The you know retired guy who served in as a house staffer for 30 years, became a really wealthy lobbyist, is now retired. He's like running the local Little League there. The town council meeting was totally packed with involved people. These are people who know their neighbors. Their kids grow up under married parents. Now, I mean, you know this, but some of my conservative readers thought, oh, well, yeah, rich liberals or whatever. They, they're a bunch of swingers. They don't care about family values. No, they're practicing what a conservative Catholic like me is preaching. They, get, they finish school. They get a job. They get married. They raise their kids. It kind of is 1960 (laughs) in Chevy Chase. The American dream is very alive. People belong to the country club. They even go to mass at Blessed Sacrament there, which is Brett Kavanaugh's church. And it's 2,000 people, and it's really rich. Oostburg, Wisconsin, 2,000 people, not really rich. The average house is $150,000 in Oostburg. The population there, 50% of them approximately 
state their ancestry as being Dutch. So I'm not talking like Pennsylvania Dutch, but people named like Holly Vander something. And I went out there and I got there on a Sunday and I'm sitting at the local diner and everybody knows each other. And then in come a ton of families from one of the Christian Reformed churches that got out at, at 10 o'clock. And then at 10.15, the second Christian Reformed Church and the third dump out all their people and Judy's diners getting really filled. And then the fourth. So this is one specific strain of Christianity, sort of Dutch Reform, Reformed Church of America, Christian Reformed Church in a town, a village of 2,000. There's four of these churches. And there, you read the reference to a standing room only Christmas concert. One of the farmhands complained to me that he couldn't get a seat at his son's Christmas concert. And when he looked, the seats were filled by people who lived in the town, but didn't even have kids in the public school. And when he gave them a hard time, one of these parents said, we got to come see our kids sing. Our kids, meaning the kids of Oostburg. So these are two places with very strong communities, very low drug overdoses, very high high school graduation rates, etc., and they're very different. One is a Christian conservative town that voted for Ted Cruz. The other is an elite, liberal, college-educated, wealthy town that voted for John Kasich. They both rejected Donald Trump, I argue, because in both of these places, the American dream is alive and well. And where is it dead? So I mentioned earlier Fayette County, the Mon Valley in Pennsylvania, our south of Pittsburgh, Uniontown, PA, the county seat of Fayette County. It was dependent on coal. It was dependent on steel. And when you show up there, I went to Smitty's, which is on the edge of town. I went, I've been into town, sat on the, the front porches on right in the middle of town and talked to, so I've gotten to see the whole breadth of, of Uniontown from sort of the old white guys to the 30, 40 something year old black guys who are there. One guy told me, he said, Uniontown is good only if you want to get shot, get laid, or get high. And in the bar there, I would talk to people who I'd say, do you trust your neighbors? And they say, no, that's why I have a gun. I didn't have a gun, except I, I started to think my neighbors were drug dealers. I talked to moms, single moms in Uniontown who say, well, it's safe as long as you always keep track of your kids at every moment. And it's just too bad that there's nothing to do. If I wanted to do a family night on Friday, well, the roller rink already closed down. The go-kart place already closed down. One of the Catholic churches closed down in Uniontown. And so in these places, what happened wasn't just the jobs disappeared. The institutions, the things to do, the places to belong to, the churches, the community uh, centers, the coffee shops, they all have closed down. So again, the shuttered factory might be the first domino, but what really causes a suffering is going to be the shuttered church and youth center. Are the people in those towns right to be angry with the government? Or are they looking in the wrong place? I talk a lot about politics being the prerequisite to civil society, but not being the same thing as civil society. That's one reason mm -hmm. I call myself a conservative. That is to say, I think there is a role for government to create a basic set of conditions in which people can live their lives freely. But then I want it to get out of the way. You've mentioned economic conditions, factory closures, the lack of 
steel plants or coal mines. But that's not the government's fault in most cases, is it? Well, so if if I were, I mean, the way we could get into this is I talk in the in Alienated America about the when the St. Lawrence Seaway was finally cleared for large large ships, uh, cargo ships to go out from the Great Lakes across to the Atlantic. This happened after World War II. So like Great Lakes ships going to Europe was kind of a new thing. It didn't happen by like climate change and rising water. The government said, our government, Canada's government said, it will be better for the United States and Canada if we spend a lot of money and do the engineering to make a seaway so that boats can get from the Great Lakes to the Atlantic, large ships. That was not just like the free market on its own. That was a government looking at the gains from trade. I think Robert Lighthizer has a book out now denying the saying there's no such thing as free trade, which is a line I sometimes use too, because I do say that when, and then when we pursued free trade deals with Europe and the WTO, um, whether you want to call this something government did or not is kind of a, an open question, right? Like on one extent, it's not, it's the government saying some guy in China wants to sell something and Tim in Virginia wants to buy it. The government shouldn't get in the way. On the other hand, the idea that, well, these people in these factories are going to lose their jobs, but goods are going to be cheaper. That kind of was a public policy decision made by our ruling class. And so the argument that I would make is that when we look at the costs of free trade, we should include not just that these guys lost their jobs, but now their grandchildren are dying of drug overdoses outside of Pittsburgh. All right, so let's be clear here. You say in the book that this problem can't be fixed with, quote, job training programs or more entitlement spending. Now, you pair that with the observation that the left is right when it suggests that, quote, people aren't showing up at Trump rallies to support corporate tax cuts or Obamacare repeal. You mentioned job training programs and more entitlement spending as a left-leaning policy area that doesn't really apply here. You're saying there are some government programs that could, say, industrial policy. No, you had asked me about causes. Yeah. Um, so solutions and causes, the unparalleledness of them, we need to embrace. There was an old thing some of my libertarians used to friend friends used to say is, or you don't need to make the grass grow. You just need to remove the rocks that are covering it. I have children. I know that that's not true. They kill the grass by leaving stuff on there. And when I pull it up, weeds come up in its place. So even if the rocks killed the grass, it doesn't mean removing the rocks will bring it back. And so that means that means a lot of things in my book. But the main thing is this. I don't think industrial policy can bring factory jobs back. We cannot go back 1958 to be a white dude with a high school degree in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, was the peak of the American dream. We cannot bring it back, is what I would say to my, my friends who agree with me on this, J.D. Vance, etc. They think there's a set of policies that can bring it back. I don't think so. I don't even think a time machine and protectionism in the in the 50s and 60s and 90s would do the trick because I think the jobs would be replaced by robots. And so part of 
being a, a good, realistic conservative means what was really necessary then. And the factory jobs were enabled the strong, robust communities on the middle class and the working class, but we're, we can't get them back is what I believe. I mean, you know that I, I, I of all people, don't think that you're going to get the desired results when you start subsidizing automakers or, or putting up protective tariffs. It's yeah. just going to be cronyism. It's just going to robots are going to get the jobs and the lobbyists are going to get all the money. But let, um, let me ask you a really harsh question then. Why should other people in the United States not just say, well, that's terrible, but there's nothing we can do about it. It just is. Yeah. Or because, get up and leave Garbutt, as, as Kevin Williams Well, right, because if we can't fix it with protectionism or industrial policy, if there's no magic set of tools that we can use at the federal level to bring the economic conditions in those places back to where they were, and you don't think that it can be solved with palliative measures like job training and welfare measures, at what point are we just throwing up our hands on the economic side? We haven't got to the rest yet on the economic mm -hmm. side and saying, you know what, that sucks, but it is. So on, on one level, uh, I think conservatives should not run towards seeing everything as either economic problems or public policy problems. That, again, that's part of what makes us conservatives, right? We believe that culture matters, and we believe that, uh, as you say, some level of, of government and rule of law is a precondition. Also, some bad public policies should be rooted out. So I do have a last chapter, which is kind of a solutions chapter, but I admit that I'm not much of a solutions guy. But there are things that the the laws about our labor unions that make them that make everything super legalistic, you know, a majority votes and then the company is forced to unionize and then people whether they're in a right-to-work law, either kind of have to pay to the union or don't have to pay money. The union. All of that is totally dysfunctional. And there are parts of the world that have labor unions that function as these institutions of civil society. People join them voluntarily, and employers realize that dealing with the union is actually the best thing for business in Northern Europe. It sounds completely foreign to American ears, but I, I lay some of that out in there. So that's an economic policy. It would be a massive overhaul, but changing our labor unions to give working class people this kind of voluntary institution of civil society that actually has economic value would be one way to do it. And then again, my argument other on other policy fronts is on cultural issues. Stop trying to drive the church out of the public square. <laughs> These people suffer from the more that people don't belong to church, the worse off our culture is. And yet so much of the cultural left thinks that their job should be to tell churches to shut up and go hide behind their church doors and try to continue to secularize America. Yeah, that was my next question. I was going to say, you can't force people to be religious. And then I was going to ask you where government policy on religion can or should come in. So you think well, that so, yeah. people are being discouraged actively from religious faith and community? So the, the starting point there is churches belong in the public square. And so Nancy Pelosi, when defending the Obama administration going after the nuns, said, look, I do my religion on Sundays. <laughs> and you can't be a, a Catholic one day out of the week. 
And then you had our, our friend Beto O'Rourke saying, basically, you can believe whatever you want to believe behind your church doors, but the second you start serving other people, like opening a Catholic hospital or running a business, then you're no longer allowed to just follow your conscience. So the ACLU has sued to try to force Catholic hospitals to perform abortions, etc. And Obama used to say freedom of worship instead of free exercise of religion. So this is a whole push to say religion is a private thing you do on your Sabbath, behind closed doors, or in your own house, privately praying. But when you enter the public square, you have to play by our rules. So a Christian or Jewish adoption agency violates these rules, these norms, these state laws, these federal laws sometimes, but definitely the expectations that, oh, well, yeah, you have to treat a gay marriage the same as a straight marriage. Or nowadays, you have to treat a, a boy who identifies as a girl, you have to treat as a girl. And so that makes it impossible for these organizations to run according to their own consciences. And the, a lot of people on the secular left are happy with that. They say, fine, then just go back to all the, your, your praying and singing hymns and stop trying to get involved in civil society. Get out of the public square. And to some extent, that's working. And But when the church isn't in the public square, and by the church, I mean Catholic, Protestant, Mormon, Jewish, Muslim, etc. When the church isn't in the public square, it loses some of its draw. Religious attendance falls when churches do less sort of charitable and, and voluntary work. Part of what people get out of church is this is a way for me to serve my fellow man. When that's taken over by the federal government or given up by the church uh, or taken over by the the private, the for-profit private sector, in the case of sports, youth sports, etc., then church loses some of its appeal. So anything we have that's tearing people away from church is tearing people away from the fundamental source of community connectedness for middle class and working class since the beginning of this country. To what extent, Tim, is this ultimately a book about religion? I just expressed my classical liberal skepticism this can be solved with government. I think you echoed a great deal of that, although perhaps not as much as I would. The quotation at the start of your book, before the book even begins, is Seek the well-being of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for in its well-being will be your well-being. And as you noted, there's a church on the front cover, not a factory. How much is this book ultimately about the need for, if not a great awakening, a restoration of religious observance of community in America? I mean, the word ultimately there... I hope that everything I write is ultimately <laughs> giving praise <laughs> to God enough. and calling for conversion. Um, and it's so it's general, the general thrust is, and then the uh, solutions chapter, I say, like, you should start a potluck, you should start a t-ball league, but I also say you should go to church. So the big picture is civil society, involvement, volunteering, belonging to things. That's the American dream. Most of my readers are probably already doing that, frankly, because it's a book that's probably being read by college-educated Americans. That's a minority uh, that is more involved in community than, uh, than the working classes. But to A, acknowledge that that's your privilege. B, spread it more. And that it can be totally secular. Community libraries, 
uh, a local public school with strong community involvement. These are all great institutions of civil society that are absolutely necessary. And the diversity, this is one of the things Tocqueville touches on, the diversity of this in a, is part of what makes America great. That I, when I, I just mo- moved out of Maryland, but I would say that two institutions where I spent a good bit of time were St. Andrew Apostle Catholic Church and the Stained Glass Pub. And the stained glass pub, despite the stained glass, had very different norms than than St. Andrew. And that that was one of the great things about America is that religion is going to be uh, one of the foremost institutions, but it's not all-encompassing in the way religion is in maybe medieval European city-states or in Iran or, or, or some other country, but that we're a secular place. You belong to all sorts of things, but there is no getting away from the fact that ultimately religious institutions are, as a matter of history, the main source of civic involvement in the United States. Again, Putnam kind of begrudgingly grants that in Bowling Alone, and that they possess the key thing that makes a good institution of civil society deliver its goods of a human level safety net, of belonging, of a sense of purpose, of making human beings better and building virtue, which is that you are brought outside of yourself. You're serving other people as a way of serving a higher good. Yuval Levin would say you, you're kind of assigned a role in a good institution of civil society, and that obviously is very true in, in worship communities. And so, yeah, I, I begin with that, that quote from Jeremiah, and I pepper throughout the book, and I... Uh, end the book with sort of an image of, of walking down the aisle of, of, of church for a wedding, because it is ultimately about that. I don't think we can have, and I know this will upset a lot of my secular friends, but I don't think we can have a renaissance of civil society in America unless we have a renaissance of religious belief. Let me ask you the question that I think a staunch progressive would ask you at this point. You set the book up with Trump's quote about the American dream being dead. You talk about people who go to Trump rallies. You distinguish between areas in part based upon how they voted in the Republican primary. I think many progressives wouldn't have said that that is all a fig leaf, that this is about status. Well, this isn't my view, not even close. Mm-hmm. But I think progressives would say that for years, a lot of American whites, a lot of American white working class communities were poor. And they suffered various downturns. But that because of racial discrimination and prejudice, they were nevertheless high status relative to African Americans and others and that this has now changed, and that those people are angry because they're now both poor and low status. Well, some of them aren't poor, but they're low status. And so they're looking for the government and a political movement to endorse them. And that all of what we're talking about here and the various books that have been written about it is a a post-rationalization of that. So I think if we're talking about status there, that's where the progressives totally miss it. 
but the element of truth and I that I talk about in the book is that part of what made life good in 1959 Uniontown, Pennsylvania for the high school educated white guy was that he was protected from competition. He was protected from compete Europe was still in shambles. 15 years after the war they were recovering, but certainly the 15 year head start <laughs> or the 10 year head start that uh the U.S. had gotten after the war helped. China was not able to you, the the factory man there did not in Pittsburgh did not have to compete with workers in China. To some extent, would be Americans immigrants were they were not as present in the U.S. until the sixties. And um, men also there, there were jobs still certainly cut off from women. So that's what I'll definitely grant the progressives. I, I sometimes use the analogy of Bob Ramazzotti, who is a baseball player from that area, he was supposed to be the starting second baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the late 1940s. Jackie Robinson took his job. <laughs> so are we supposed to feel bad for Bob Ramazzotti? Well, he did suffer. He got sent back down to the minors because of a change, but the change was good. And I would say that the competition with Europe certainly was good. Competition with China, it's a more complicated question. The opening up jobs to immigrants and, and women, et cetera, all of that stuff is a benefit. So some of the suffering of the white working class guy is because they lost their special privilege that they didn't deserve. So that's where the progressives are right. Where they're dead wrong is that there was no other real suffering. Remember the jokes about, oh, economic anxiety, LOL. Again, the, the element of truth in the liberal criticism is that it wasn't just economic. What they miss is that the cultural losses were real losses. And so I went to I went to Uniontown and I went to Smitty's and I was there and I was asking about the economy to like get at this economic anxiety story. And the the descriptions of the local economy were contradictory. Oh, there's no jobs here since Steel left. And then the manager at Smitty's Bar and Grill said, Well, and you can't hire anybody. I said, Wait, which is it? A labor shortage or or a job shortage? And they said, well, the problem is uh, the welfare. And they tell these stories about welfare queens buying, trying to buy dog food with their food stamps, yada, yada. All these stories about people who won't work hard in a pub on 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon. And so I said to Dave at the end of the bar, I said, Dave, you're not working either. You're what? You're 60? He said, well, yeah, my back and this and that and horrible you know, surgeries, back pain. I say, so there's no like desk jobs you could do? He said, Tim, I can't sit at a desk for more than half an hour without being in excruciating pain. I said, Dave, you've been sitting on a bar stool for 90 minutes. And he said, well, I'm numb today because my son died this morning. And it was a drug overdose. Dave hadn't been in Smitty's for five years because he hadn't had a drink in five years. He had gotten his life straight and his son had finally gotten a job but the, the plagues of these collapsed places were real. And I kind of knew the numbers, which is why I ended up there. But until I was looking Dave in the eyes, I still held a little bit of that doubt in my mind of, are these places really suffering? And it's not from a lack of status. It's from a lack of purpose. It's from a lack of belonging. And that's what every human, every person needs. It's not just, oh, here's money enough to afford your rent and your food. It's knowing that somebody else needs you the next day. It's knowing that if something goes wrong, somebody's going to help take care of you. 
these things that we take for granted if we have them, life without them is is unlivable. And so the the suffering is real. And anybody who says it's just about a lack of status uh, should come out with me to these places and see that something of value was lost. Not just, oh, it was your privilege that was lost. It was your belonging, your purpose, your human level safety net that was lost. This may sound counterintuitive, but should those people move in the way, say, Kevin Williamson has... Yeah. And so I went back to Smitty's after I wrote this book, and I asked everybody in the bar, why didn't you move? And so first of all, a lot of people did. One of the guys said, one of the things I love is that this bar is so empty because so many people did move. He just said, I like the quietude. I like that my deer stand, my hunting stand is 15 minutes. If I leave right now, I'm in my deer stand in 15 minutes. He said he, uh, he was from there. And that was the other thing. When I went into town and I was talking to young black men who were there who said, oh, there's nothing good here. One of them was violating his terms of parole from Sarasota, Florida, where he rented a house to hang out in Uniontown. It's like, why in the world would you do that? And he said, this is where I'm from. And then using the N-word, he said, a hood fella is always a hood fella. (laughs) And that idea, again, ought to resonate a little bit with conservatives. The idea that you're attached to a place because you're from there and that you're not just attached to a place because it provides some value in some transactional way is something conservative. So when I left Maryland, Montgomery County, Maryland, dreadful government, dreadful rise in crime. I couldn't stop crying when I moved out of it just because I had lived there for 15 years. And so the, the Kevin Williamson critique comes in if we're saying, oh, we ought to provide welfare for people to continue to stay in Uniontown or in Garbutt, New York. Sure. But are we going to say that it's irrational, that there's something wrong with wanting to stay where you are? No. And should we say, well, maybe maybe we should do something to make it possible for people to stay in these places? I would say yes. Again, not necessarily a, a big welfare program, but that there's a value in staying where you are is something that every conservative should know. And in fact, Joe Biden even acknowledges that. Joe Biden tweeted something to that effect. He obviously can't make it possible, but the idea that, a, that we should only be attached to a place insofar as it provides us with economic or educational value is a materialistic, incredibly short-sighted view of what, what place and belonging is. Do you have a theory as to why, at least in recent years, this has channeled itself through the Republican Party rather than the Democrats? If you look at the last hundred years, you would have anticipated these areas would be full of farm labor Democrats. But Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, somebody who ran under the Republican banner, was the guy who tapped into it. Yeah, so part of it is that it was the first time when Trump took over the Republican Party, it was the first time that there was a party in recent memory not run by somebody who really represented the elites. I always joke that Trump was the guy at the end of the bar. His views self-contradictory, based on his idea of common sense, based on some sort of ideas that are, are, are uh, salutary and some ideas that are not, not really caring if it would actually work in practice. That's a very normal American view. But 
this individualistic transactional mindset that some people call Davos man, that that was kind of embodied in the elites of both parties since World War II. And so there was sort of a homelessness to a working class person who, you know, wasn't going around spouting off Tocqueville quotes, but just kind of knew that where you're from shaped who you are and that life wasn't supposed to just be a series of transactions and that, um, you know, that, that virtues were virtues and not just best practices. Those ideas weren't really sort of articulated or embodied by the, the, what Chris Arnaud calls the, the mobile and global educated elite, the front row. So it might've just been that that's where Trump showed up. But I would also think, again, conservatism, as you and I understand it with a little bit of uh, Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk, place matters. Tradition matters. Faith and community really do matter. They're not just nice things to have. They really do form who we are. Has anything changed since you wrote and released this book in 2018-19? It's now 2023. Mm -hmm. Trump's no longer president. We've had some changes in economic policy. We went through COVID. Is it worse? Is it better? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, COVID made everything worse for exactly the reasons we're talking about here. COVID made it so that I wrote a piece in the examiner recently, citing all these people who talk about how weird it is that my neighbor showed up at my house uninvited, (laughs) or the neighbor kid came by and was playing with my kid uninvited, or, you know, a, a direct TV ad that mocks the idea that you should go over to your neighbor's house to watch a game instead of watching it in the solitude of your own house. People as either uh, vectors or pathogens is became more widespread. The idea that, uh, you know, I remember all the New York Times stories, oh, masks are great because they keep a chatty neighbor at bay. All these ideas that are antisocial got to like be trotted out in the open and become virtue. So it definitely made it worse. But also, One thing that's changed is that the libs are noticing this. Again, Joe Biden tweeted out that you should be able to stay where you grew up. He just tweeted that out last week. You got Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut saying, I think we do have a crisis of faith that people not belonging and believing is the root of a lot of our problems. So something happened in the last 18 months. I wanted to release a a lib version of Alienated America. Maybe I'd put like a a shuttered... um, universalist church on the cover or something <laughs> with a rainbow flag on it. Something has happened in the last 18 months, and maybe you know, you, I, I still don't know what it is, but that has made a lot of people on the left realize, wait a second, this community and belonging and maybe even this church stuff sort of matters, so we should worry about that disappearing. And my theory is that they thought that the religious right was a problem. And after seeing QAnon rise and January 6th stuff, they thought, uh-oh, maybe the sort of post-Christian right is a lot more scary. All right, that leads me into my last question, which is, are you hopeful? Do you anticipate that this problem is going to get better or worse over time? So since we talked about the collapsing community giving us Trump, I should be very clear that I think Trump exacerbates the problem because he centralizes our attention. Even the idea that he wanted everybody to watch a national fireworks show instead of the way America's done it 
since we've had fireworks, which is everybody in their local community. So the idea that Trump keeps rising in power makes me worried that conservative, the sort of everyday conservative is being torn away from the matters at hand and attention brought towards this big national political warfare, which is a, you know, it's a everybody loses type thing like war games movie. So that makes me pessimistic. The idea that some on the left are seeing it makes me optimistic. But my two sort of cop outs on this question One is, I stopped making predictions after my articles in 2016 that said, no, Donald Trump can't win. I I don't know what the future holds. And the other is that uh, I'm I'm a Christian, Charlie. So ultimately, I I have hope for the future. And I'm a conservative, so I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to know how, uh, how the happy ending will come about. But I, I, I do think things will, will turn for the better on this front in maybe not in our lifetimes, but down the road. All right. Well, Tim Carney, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Tim Carney. Thank you to the guy at the local fireworks stand who sold me six fireworks for the price of one and then offered me the whole tent for a cool $500, which, for the record, I didn't accept, but now slightly regret. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you next week.